Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. Welcome back to Je Nicole, everyone. Last episode, we talked about the current war in Ukraine and Russia with Dr. Rob Person. In this episode, we now look to a future war and the minds that will help us navigate them. To lead us in this discussion today, I am joined by Mick Ryan, AM, who is a retired senior Australian Army officer, prolific keynote speaker, and author of the book War Transformed, The Future of the 21st Century Great Power Competition and Conflict. So for our listeners, I've pasted the link below so you can purchase the book. Welcome to the show, Mick, and thanks so much for joining us. Before we get into your book and your thoughts on future war, you had an illustrious career that spanned 30 years and your military career ended with you as the commander of the Australian Defence College. Did that posting in particular stimulate the idea for your book or was it the culmination of ideas and concepts throughout your career? But no, I've always had an interest in the future, I think ever since I saw Star Wars in 1977. Um, And I have written about future challenges for some time and it was very much a culmination of a lot of thinking over the previous two decades uh, as well as a lot of the lectures and talks I had given um, at, you know over the previous decade and, and particularly at the uh, at the Defence College and for me it was kind of my final red star cluster um, to say hey this is kind of what I've learned over the last 35 years and hope you might be able to take something from it. And going to your book now, War Transformed, one of the key concepts that's woven throughout the book is that the character of war is constantly evolving, but the nature of it endures. For those who haven't yet read the book, would you be able to share your thoughts on this concept, please? Sure. It's it's not an original Mick Ryan concept. It's very much a Clairsvitzian idea uh, that the enduring nature of war is its, its centrality, centrality of uh, humans and their emotion, um, their intelligence, and all the things that go into uh, humans competing over different objectives, that war is essentially about human will or a battle of wills, and that war is ultimately a political rather than a, a military activity. Uh, and Clausewitz proposes that that doesn't change, and I agree with that. Um, But he also proposes that every war is different because the character changes, whether it's the technologies we use, whether it's the locations of those fights, whether it's the reasons why we fight, that continues to evolve. Uh, And we're seeing that in Ukraine. You know, war in Ukraine is an evolution of wars that have gone before it as the war that comes after it will be a subsequent evolution. So... Uh, nature of war is about continuity. Um, the character of war is about change. Yeah, and you talk a lot about the change um, in modern warfare and we, you talk about how it's going to feature cutting-edge technology, sensor systems, but you also talk about that's not just going to predominantly um, focus on these systems, but it's going to be a mixing of the old with the new. 
Would you be able to mm. highlight that concept for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, we need to understand what's changing uh, in war, whether it's uh, technologies, whether it's the drivers of things like a new um, geopolitical situation in the world. But we also need to understand, you know, what, what isn't changing? You know, there's this notion that humans are very competitive animals, fear, honour, interests will continue to be important aspects of how we interact. Um, because of this, war isn't going away. And I think Ukraine has shown once again, war is part of human existence. You can't wish it out of existence like many have tried to do. Um, and a really important continuity is that we'll continue to get surprised. Um, for many, the Solomon Islands Treaty with China was a surprise. Uh, tactically, you always try and surprise an enemy and we get surprised. Strategically, democracies are endlessly surprised by wars. So it's a central aspect of war and competition. We, we need to uh, understand that, understand how to avoid it. And if you can't avoid it, how do you respond effectively without that being the end of the war on day one? And so by fact of you saying in your book it's going to be a mixing of the old and the new, um, do you then think that some commentators tend to just focus on the new and emerging side of things? Is that what led you to come to that comment? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot of great books out there that are obsessed with what is new or at least what people think is new. I mean, if you don't study history, just about everything's new, right? Mm. Um but a lot of things that people are proposing are, are new things like uh, reconstruct complexes or kill chains are just really evolutions of old ideas or old ways of doing things. And if there was one central idea that I would hope people take from the book is that um, despite these changes, despite these massive and ongoing advances in technologies, it, it's actually the combination of new ideas, new organisations and well-trained educa educated people that will prove decisive for military organisations in the 21st century. Yeah, okay. And I know you mentioned um, surprise before and potentially sometimes it's a bit of a human bias there because we think that because of the technological sophistication that's happening and the pace, um, we think that it's going to be a problem that's going to be solved and surprise may be eradicated. Mm. So that's interesting. Also in War Transformed, you argue that while human competition is a continuous feature of life, 21st century competition is different from the previous eras. What are some of the key differences there? Well, there's a couple. Firstly, uh, for the first time ever, Humans have gone from tool users to be partners with tools. And I talk about artificial intelligence here, which um, is really supplementing human cognition in a way no other tool has ever done. There's a whole lot of cognitive functions that artificial intelligence can supplement in humans and potentially could replace in due course. Uh, but... It is a tool with which we need to partner that we can't just use if we're really going to get the best out of it. Another change is that we need to reconceive how we understand and use time. Um, democracies are good at using 
24-hour news cycles and three- to four-year election cycles. <laughs> but what's changed in the current era is microseconds are really important, you know, whether it's uh, quantum technologies, whether it is uh, some of the algorithms that do, you know, ultra-fast decision-making for all range of things, not just military, but power purchasing, share purchasing, these kind of things. We need to be able to exploit microseconds. And on the other end of that spectrum, we also need to be able to exploit decades. We are in a strategic competition that will play out over decades. How do governments uh, communicate that to societies and how do governments maintain focus and the patience of our population over that time. So, you know, how we think about time in the 21st century has to evolve and has to improve. improve. Yeah, you talked about quantum, so like quantum communication, cyber capabilities, AI, all of that. All these developments, do you think that's going to lead to the development of new warfare concepts as well? I hope so. Um, it should. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the core idea of my book, you know, new ideas, new organisations, um, so new warfighting concepts have been a key feature when new technologies come in. I mean, if you have a look at the aircraft, uh, it required a whole new way of thinking about warfare, and those ideas constantly evolved. I mean, originally they were just going to be scouts for uh, the tactical battle space. Then it was about leaping over uh, the grubby ground fight <laughs> as the ideas in the 20s and 30s came uh, then it was about the bomber would always get through. Um, and our ideas of aerial warfare have continued to evolve since then. Uh, we'll, we've seen the same as cyber. We've seen the same as space. And we'll see the same with new technologies that come along. They won't replace existing ideas. War never gets rid of an old idea. It just keeps adding and aggregating uh, on top of old ones, a bit like barnacles on a ship hull if you don't scrape them off. <laughs> Good naval reference there. I enjoyed that. Um, speaking of the speed of warfare and then now moving from the actual nature of war but practitioners of war, with all these developments, what do you think that means we need to actually cultivate in the future warfighter? Um, well, firstly, we need to uh, make sure we get the right people in, although I don't think that's ever been a great problem for our services. We generally do attract the right kinds of people. But then we're going to give them the right training and right education whilst nurturing in them a culture of self-learning as well. I mean, you can never learn everything you need to know in a schoolhouse. You need experience, but you also need the discipline of self-learning. Um, and that, I think, most importantly, keeps you up with what's going on in the world. And in a world that's changing so quickly, you must have this discipline of self-learning and professional reading just to keep up with the technology, with the politics and all the other things that a contemporary uh, leader needs to have. It doesn't matter what domain you're working. Yeah. And you use the term generating military advantage through people in your book. And I guess you were the Director General for Training and Doctrine for the Army and then later Commander of the Australian Defence College, as we've previously mentioned, what did you try to achieve in these roles to ensure that the minds at the forefront of a future war are personally and professionally prepared to perform? Well, I think most importantly, it was trying to have an explicit statement of what we're trying to get in our training and education systems. Um, if you don't have an idea of the outcome you're after, 
it's pretty hard to build a 21st century um, connected system to prepare our people for war. So, you know, getting a notion of what we're after was important. We did this for Army, did it at the joint level with the new curriculum and continuum. So that was important, but also ensuring that what the training and education systems thought was the outcome was actually what the service chiefs thought was the outcome as well. So building those uh, connections between uh, the training and education systems and service leaders was a really important part of my job. Uh, in sh you know, and you know, the big strategic decisions, I always took the service chiefs, CDF and secretary because they're the ones who own the force, not me. I was just working on their behalf to help um, lead the preparation of people. So they play a very important role. And where we could solicit their support uh, and their open statements about the importance of the intellectual journey people needed to go on, that was all to the betterment of the institution, I thought. Yep. Okay. I just want to kind of touch on another divergent topic in, in your book um, from what we've been speaking about. You talk about the concept of counter-adaptation, which I found really interesting, particularly the graph, and no spoilers here, go and buy the book, listeners. But uh, I found that a compelling argument um, that had not previously gained much attention in um, my own um, reading, at least. Can you explain that a little bit for our listeners? Well, it's not a term that's actually out there. Um, I just came up with it when I was in Afghanistan in 06, 07, um, because in the preceding years, I'd done a lot of work in complex adaptive systems theory with a few DSTG people. Army did a lot of work in basing its tactical and operational concepts on uh, adaptation and an evolution of the OODA loop. So I used it as the basis of our uh, CONOPS in Afghanistan. But you know, at some point it occurred to me that, well, if we're trying to out-adapt the enemy, shouldn't we also be hindering the enemy's adaptive processes? So I started using this term counter-adaptation. I started writing about it back then but decided not to uh, have it out there because I didn't really want the Taliban or others to be using it against us. But I decided to kind of rebirth it for the book because I think it's an important concept. It's not easy, uh, but it really is just about ensuring the enemy's adaptive processes, its system for learning, becoming a learning culture, uh, are not fully realised and that we do the things to interfere with them realising an effective learning culture. Yeah, any um, warfighters listening, which there are many, you really need to read that section of the book. I found that incredibly interesting. Uh, now, final question before we get into the, the Sailors 3 in Australia, we effectively operate as a, a joint force. And if I think about the Australian approach to warfare document, it states that's a matter of national necessity for a, a nation like Australia. But as an army guy, speaking to the Australian perspective specifically, with the scaling back of our footprint in the Middle East, where do you see the Australian army's role in the current great power competition paradigm, particularly with our focus on the Indo-Pacific? Hmm. I don't think it changes a lot. I mean, the Australian Army's culture has always been expeditionary. Um, we don't fight home games. We fight away games. If Australia's in the business of fighting home games, we've lost already. So we need to be expeditionary. Um, we need to be highly lethal. Um, we need to be well-trained and we need to be ready. 
Now, what that means for structures is interesting. It means if you want to be expeditionary uh, in the Indo-Pacific, it means you need to balance lethality with your strategic deployability. Um, but it also means you need to increase your uh, reach when it comes to lethality. Um, so I think the Australian Army will probably need to look at um, the deployability of some of its systems um, or the Navy and Air Force will need to buy more more, uh, more mobility systems to get, a, get us where we need to go. Um, the Army will probably need to be able to deploy forward to deny parts of um, the Earth that may have traditionally been a Navy role so the Navy can go further forward and fight, to be quite frank. Um, with long range, you know, the army needs long range anti ship missiles, long range strike missiles. Yeah. Um, because we need as many launch platforms across the three services as we can get for them. Um, because the scarier we are to a potential adversary, uh, the less likely they are to mess with us in our region. Okay, great. Thanks for that. Um, now we'll move into our Sailors 3, which signifies the end of our podcast episode. So a lot of our uniformed and defence industry listeners are familiar with the term Soldiers 5 and I'm aware that I'm now talking to a, a soldier while I say this, but it's a succinct briefing style used in the Army and here at Je Nicole we're going to live up to the translation of it, um, but it's just going to be the Sailors 3. So three quick questions we ask all our guests. First one is your favourite, most remarkable and service military platform that you can think of. It can actually be decommissioned. So what is your answer, Mick? Um, the V2 rocket, because of the impact it had on every generation of rocket and missiles and nuclear deterrence over the last 60 or 70 years. Okay, great. And uh, the next question is, and this is right up your alley, most interesting emerging technology that can be at any stage of development. So it can be at the Star Wars level, if you wish. Uh, everyone loves Star Wars, but no, I think it's autonomous ground vehicles just because the ground environment with all the clutter just has so many challenges to it. Okay. And the final one, the final question is the wild card, so you can either make a prediction for the future of military operations. It's probably slightly unfair because that's kind of what you do in your book. <laughs> um, you can recommend a book, which is probably also unfair because you've got one that I'm plugging for you today. Well, your last one is um, a tip for emerging maritime leaders. So uh, what will you choose? Now, I thought about this. It's the tip. And the tip is invest in your own intellect. Uh, the schoolhouse can only provide you with so much. Yeah. And so just to expand on that, when you were, I guess, major level, mid-level officer, which we've got quite um, a lot of listeners at that demographic, hmm. how did you keep yourself accountable? How did you go about doing that? Did you have a schedule or...? It's, it's actually when I started writing for, for, for professional journals uh, because to write you've got to read uh, and to read you've got to critically think and it helped me develop those skills uh, long before staff college. Uh, it was just a realisation that I had to take on more of this myself, so I did. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. As I said earlier, everyone, make sure you have a look at um, Mick Ryan's new book. It's a great read. And again, thank you for joining us and hopefully we'll chat again soon. I hope so. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Je Nicole Pod. Stay in contact with us through Je Nicole underscore pod on Twitter or www.jeunicole.com.